Hello and welcome to Find the Outside, the podcast. I must say that we have a particularly delicious and delectable pod for you today. (laughs) One, because of the content, but two, because of the constellation of human beings you are going to get to listen to. First of all, before we even go into the guests, who are pretty remarkable, I actually have a guest show host with me today, which is the remarkable uh, and incorrigible Summer Sibylle Brown. And uh, Summer is, of course, an outsider. She's one of our crew. She's also the ED of the Virgin Island Good Food Network. She's on the advisory board of the National Farm to School Network. Um, She's also a radio DJ, just in case anybody, I I think that's true, isn't it, Summer? And, you know, just by my, my, my own estimation, someone of highly uh, regarded fashion taste uh, at least through my own eyes summer what do you want to just come on and say hi mate hello 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 i am so excited tim to be on of all the things you mentioned i just want to know i want to say to our listeners the radio dj is my favorite right i actually love <laughs> podcasting i love interviewing people so I'm really excited to be on this podcast today with you, one of my favorite humans. And yeah, want to get into the book or want to get into our guest is what I should say. Nice. Well, our our remarkable guest, Tuesday Reinhardt, has changed to the other side of the virtual table today. (laughs) Right. Normally she's hosting with me. Now she's on the receiving end. And listeners, she said she was nervous. I know. It's so weird. It's so strange to be on this side and actually feel nervous because I'm always like, oh, no, it's great. It's just a conversation. Now I'm like, ah. Oh. Yeah. She, she described, I, you know, we often share questions ahead of time with the people we're interviewing on the pod. And uh, I shared my questions with Tuesday. She's like, they're really intense. <laughs> <laughs> they are, man. I was just like, Tim Mary, bring in the intense questions. I, yeah. That's what we want. There you go. I was just like, they're my real questions anyway. And then she told me she loved my intensity and that was great. So we all had this old lovely moment. It was great. <laughs> and then, of course, we have Gabrielle Donnelly on the, on the podcast, who is an outsider, a professor at Acadia University, a good friend, uh, a, a hosting and facilitation practitioner, well into her mastery, as well as I just think like an, an all-round viewer of life from an incredibly unique perspective. Mm-hmm. I feel like every time mm-hmm. I talk with you, Gabe, you're bringing a way of seeing something which is from a vantage point that I just haven't seen it from, which is probably what makes you such an incredible researcher in so many ways. But just as a friend and a colleague, it's one of the real gifts I think that you bring again and again to everything we do. It's lovely to have you with us, mate. It's good to be here with all of you. And just so glad that we have this constellation for this conversation. Makes me really happy on this on this grayer day in Nova Scotia. And I feel like I underselled your like academic prowess there by just saying you're a professor at Incadia University. And I do this often. It's like when I first, first time I introduced, I introduced Meg Wheatley, I think she came to an event we were doing in the Netherlands. And I was like, this is my friend Meg, you know, and she kind of like nudged me and was like, you know, I have written four books, you know. And so- <laughs> So could you please just elaborate on the scholarly side of who you are, just because of my lack of aptitude? Oh, so happy to. But I think of myself really as a scholar practitioner, which is that both the applied work 
and the thinking about theory and research, that tension between action and reflection, action and research, that the, the gritty place in between is really what fascinates me and is challenging and is fun at times. So really, those are those are the parts. And, you know, it's interesting because I think in, in scholarly circles, it's hard to find people who really care deeply about the applied work um, or being a practitioner. And then likewise, you know, my my scholarly intellectual side isn't always welcome in in rooms where people are really interested in getting to action and getting things done. So uh, it's fun for me to be able to talk about those things together. And I'm certainly also very much an aspiring fashionista. Um, and I take a lot of inspiration from summer. So just to say that's in the mix, too. Can I jump in? Because I feel like one aspiring fashionista, I think something people probably might interest people in our work together is that oftentimes message Gabe and ask her what shoes she's wearing when we're doing when we were doing work. And, And I brought that up because I feel like part of the tension that you guys mentioned as we were like starting the podcast off is like the tension between the intensity of Tim's questions um, but also the joy and laughter we were bringing and like that, that moment of like, what shoes do you have on? Um, while we were often doing quite serious work was just one of the ways virtually we felt connected as fashionistas, but also brought just a sense of lightness to the work. And so my first question, um, for both of you ladies is like, what is underneath the book for you? Right. What is underneath this chapter on taking a radical stance for complex joy in the work of shaping change? Well, Gabe, I'd love it if you start only because I feel like you can speak to what's underneath the book because you edited the entire suit. So you have a, you have an overview of the book that I I don't have, although, you know, I'm excited to dive in and I've read several chapters and I can I think I can get to what's under the chapter. But I'd love to hear you just talk about the book as a whole first, maybe. Yeah, happy to. Uh, So it's an edited volume that has come out January 2023. And it is the Handbook for Creative Futures. It's an edited volume. And we have over 35 contributors, contributing chapters. And the premise of the book, really, my co-author, Alfonso Montori, who's a a musician and an educator uh, professor at, at the California Institute of Integral Studies, really came from this idea that, well, what we were noticing in a lot of conversations around futures and the future is that people have a hard time imagining it because there is so much that we're confronted with that feels hard and surmountable challenging, you know, and I, and I won't get into the list. I mean, I think we each can kind of access that from what we read in the news to the conversations we might be having around our dinner tables. But we really saw the need to activate and think about what does creativity in the way we look at the future, how can we activate that? How can we invite that, invite imagination around these these potential futures that we're moving towards beyond dystopias and utopias, you know, this sense of, of not just having a shallow optimism, but one that's really looking at what hangs in the balance and choosing as human beings to activate our imaginative creative potential, you know, and so we have amazing chapters from, you know, 
Adrian Marie Brown and, and Autumn Brown. And we have Bio Akamolafe. We have Zia Sardar talking about decolonizing the imagination. We have people talking about universal basic income and uh, what would an ecological civilization look like? And so there's this kind of very broad and wide set of invitations to thinking about futures in generative ways, in um, inspiring ways, even if they're hard to grasp or far from our reach. And so the chapter's really set in that context. Uh, so taking a radical stance for complex joy in the work of shaping change. And so twos, what's underneath our chapter? Yeah, thank you. Um, and I just love to hear you talk about the whole book in that way. Um, and was just thrilled to be invited to contribute. And so I think, you know, what I feel really proud of is that actually we are taking a stand for complex joy for the future. There's something like I don't that is for me what is underneath the chapter is us taking a stand for doing this work toward the future in a way that brings joy, that believes in wholeness and goodness. And it's not just, it is not only an imagination, it's rooted in what we're doing now. We're not just hoping for that future, we're actually experiencing it now. And we know that taking a joyful stance, complex joy, right? Not just kind of like what people might think of when they hear joy. But it felt like underneath this chapter was a desire for me at least to articulate that we are, we can move toward a future in a in a way that that has more connection, more joy, more depth is not easy, but also isn't something that is just an imagination. It is actually what's happening. Mm. I love I love this idea that uh, that our imagination for the future is somehow rooted in our experiences today. That there's something in that, you know. But I also love this idea of like tapping into our imagination, tapping into our creativity. You know, and like, and like, my goodness, we need that in the face mm -hmm. of the mm -hmm. multifaceted crises that we're facing right now on many, many different levels of our society and our planet. Like, I just, I love this piece of engaging our imagination, right? And all too often, it's like, right, let's make a plan and a budget, you know? And it's like, well, no, actually, let's engage our imagination. Let's actually, let's go to the deep source and begin to imagine what else might be possible. And don't you all find, I mean, all of us as outsiders, don't you all find, I find that our current work makes me more imaginative, right? The people that I'm working with today help me imagine something I couldn't have imagined yesterday, right? So it's like, for me, it's like a both. And I do think, I, I think that whatever's coming in the future will require a stretch of our imagination in ways we cannot imagine. Look at that. It was a exactly little, that. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> we don't even know what the new power source is right, going to be. Right. It's almost like that idea, right? Exactly. Yeah. And and I'm aware that me being alone in my room could never imagine what's needed. That I actually had and like that's what our work teaches us for, for teaches me. Like it's like, oh, if I'm not in a room with other people imagining a future, like whatever I could imagine is insufficient. So, you know, one, yes, twos, I think all of us together in my experience as outsiders has broadened my thinking, made me more creative, made me more able to hold or, or think about what's possible. But there's something that you all mentioned in the chapter, right, that makes me, it, it illuminated for me what it was. And it was the tension between reality, future, 
but it was merged with like action and play. I think we're a playful bunch, right? Like even when we're in like a design session or we're debriefing from a client, right? I get energy from being with the outside because you've heard me say before, it's like one of my favorite places to work and play, right? Like, and so as Gabe was describing the use of the concept of imagination and futures in the book, I was like, how do we do that without play, right? And play is joyful, Right. Like when we see our, when we see people playing, play is joyful. So there was something illuminated for me in this moment in the conversation about the tension between what is and what can be. And we're like play and joy support the development of imagination. And, and I was just wondering as you guys, if, if this is happening for me in this conversation, as you guys were writing, what was illuminated for you that was just like, aha. We've been doing this, but I can articulate it somewhat better because we were working together. Thank you for that question. And I think it's also important to just contextualize that when we talk about this, this joy, we're, we're talking about it in the context of work that has an allegiance towards equitable futures. You know, we're not just sort of skipping into this, this idealistic future that doesn't look at the inequities that are in front of us or in rooms with us. Right. And so yeah, that tension that you're speaking of and and what did we uncover, Summer? I think for me, this, you know, complex joy was actually the, the center, the heart of this chapter that we discovered as we wrote it together. And it was because we were in conversations around, well, what is this quality? Not that we're enforcing on people in rooms, but that we want to create the space for the potential to experience joy, even in challenge and hardship, um, you know, and simple joy or the way that joy is kind of understood in, in a simple, you know, in, the, in an everyday sense is that it's without struggle or there's ease or there's, you know, moments, moments of joy that have lightness to them. And what we're talking about with complex joy is actually that we can create the opportunities to experience that even in hardship. And I think there's a a line that Tuesday wrote, which I think captures this really beautifully. It says here, um, so we can choose a joyful path, one full of moments of challenge, struggle, and triumph, or we can choose a painful path with those same moments of challenge, struggle, and triumph. And so it's not that the path is actually any different. It's how we decide to show up in it, to be lighthearted about it, to occasionally talk about our shoes, you know, to to joke, to um, to speak to some of the elephants in the room, just to let let the tension and pressure out. And so, I think for me, really, for us to get to a point where we were articulating what do we mean by this kind of joy, and that it's not enforced on anyone, it's not expected, but that we're creating the conditions for the potential to experience it, if that's there, if people want to. Summer, I really appreciate the question. And um, and it's interesting. I think I, I feel like there was a lot of content I discovered as we wrote. And I would write a piece and Gabe would write a piece and I would see what she wrote and it would spur me to write more and then it would spur her to write more. So there was, I think there was a lot of things that were discovered in the, 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 the co-writing in content. But for me, one of the biggest discoveries was actually the experience of complex joy while writing this chapter right? That there, that I experience writing sometimes as excruciating, like an excruciating intent to try to get my ideas onto a page and yet locking arms with Gabe and seeing both what she wrote, getting some of her writing guidance, because as an academic, she has more experience than that. And then 
turning it around to feel inspired. So it's like even writing the chapter had a bit of arduousness to it. Mm-hmm. And yet it was in the turning to each other in finding Gabe as my writing partner, right? Which is what happened in this chapter. We became writing partners in a way that I think might've been the intent, but I don't think was in any way a foregone conclusion. We're colleagues. We really, really like each other. You know, there's no doubt that we would have, like the experience would have been good and we would have created something nice. But I think actually finding our writing partnership was something that um, was found through Complex Joy is, is something we imagine into the future, like that kind of piece. It's it's like we ha- I had the experience of Complex Joy as I was writing about Complex Joy. And so there's not, that feels like what was actually uncovered in many ways, although there was all sorts of content, right? Like I, I didn't even know the phrase Complex Joy before we started writing. Well, we made it up Tuesday. We just, we made it up. This is our quote unquote scholarly contribution. There you go. <laughs> Well, one one of my questions is um, uh, when you talk about experiencing it when you're writing choose. I mean, one of my questions straight away is like, what does that feel like? You know, like just can you describe what that feels like? But then I was also just thinking about there's a mate of mine in the village. He's a professional musician and he's played with Bonnie, plays in Bonnie Raitt's band and all kinds of travels like top top end for, uh, musician. And his son is a soccer player, you know. And so I was talking to him about this kind of like free access develop high performance thing that we're going to do, right? To try and give kids a pathway out of circumstances through sport and stuff. And he was talking to me about how he thinks it's incredibly important that kids have an experience of reaping the the rewards of things being uncomfortable and difficult, right? That like, actually, like he, he he was talking about his experience of being a musician and like the hours of playing and of like literally like rewiring his neural networks and how painful and uncomfortable that is for him to coordinate his feet and his hands and his mouth and his brain to be able to do something new. But when he's able to do it, there's this like, oh, you know, but like it is really like irritating sometimes (laughs) (laughs) to get there and and uncomfortable and not nice and like, you know, but then he talked about like the reward of that. The reward of that is like, you're suddenly upskilled. You're suddenly upgraded. Like, like something you like, like who you are expands, you know? And, uh, and I just remind, it reminded me of that when you were talking that kind of sense, Mm -hmm. but like, Mm -hmm. I loved it when you said you felt it when you were writing the book. And and can you just describe what that feel, what it feels like? Just like, but either were one of you. Like, what's it feel like in your body? Mm. What does it feel like in your brain? Like, what does it feel like to be in a room? Like, what's the not not the not the intellectual description, but the felt experience? Just for the listeners' benefit, uh, there was a little moment there where Tuesday and Gabriel looked at each other, and then Gabe just very 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 forcefully pointed, "This is yours, mate." Right. There you go. To you, Tuesday. There you go, Ryan Hart. (laughs) Off you go, Ryan Hart. Exactly. Off you go, mate. (laughs) (laughs) So I think how would I describe it? So I did experience, especially the early writing, as quite disorienting. It was like a new experience for me to like have my... I I say my thoughts all the time in the front of rooms, you know, I write to myself all of the time, but to actually create something that would be read by another person that was an articulation of our work together was hugely vulnerable, right? So it was hugely vulnerable. So there were two pieces. There was the piece of like being with my vulnerability, 
and having my vulnerability received by my co-writer, right? And there was some honesty about the vulnerability. There was like encouragement. And there was also, because it wasn't just a like, it would the experience I want to be really clear because it was a partnership. So it wasn't like just like like me giving something to Gabe and Gabe giving it back or vice versa. It was like it just then became fodder. And and of course the culmination of that, I mean, there were just like moments of like, oh, here's what our outline could look like. That could be amazing. Oh, when we got it published. Oh, it's almost like all of that was worth it. But I will say for me that if I were to give a, a visual the visual was like pulling something out from my gut and heart and chest and offering it on a platter to Gabe and Gabe taking that platter back into her heart and chest and then back up and offered back to me. And then it just felt like kind of a back and forth in that way. And that might be a dramatic way. And then like at the end, like whatever was on that platter, like that's fucking awesome. Like I can't, believe we said that or we thought that or like we had like that it came together in that way so it felt very back and forth I'd love to hear Gabe talk about what that was like for her because I think she doesn't have the anxiety about writing that I held at the beginning of our writing this so it might have been a whole different set of circumstances but that happened to be my vulnerable place and so I can speak to it from that perspective well it certainly forged a depth of relationship because of that vulnerability of exchange that happened between us. And, you know, I just have to say to listeners, Tuesday is an incredibly poetic, beautiful writer. So even if, if you, you know, haven't done a lot of it, you are a natural in many ways. And it was really a delight. And I would say, you know, I've spent a lot of time writing alone. You know, academics do that. You know, there's something about you have to have something associated with your name, like a dissertation. It can be an excruciating experience, even if very meaningful. And this is one of the best collaborative writing experiences I've had because we slowed it down. So instead of, in some cases, collaborative writers will be like, okay, here's our outline. We've come up with it together. You write that section. I'll write this section. What we did was collaboratively come up with an arc and then each go away and write that section almost fully, all that we would say. And then, so this is that platter that Tuesday speaking, we kind of exchanged them and integrated them. And so our, so each section, our, our, the lines are really woven to the point where it's hard to see what is Tuesday and what is me. And that I can say in my experience is incredibly rare in a co-writing partnership. And so for me, it was one of the most meaningful, nourishing co-writing experiences I've had because it can be a really lonely and hard place. And I'll, I'll also just say, I mean, I feel vulnerable every time I write. Every morning I open up my laptop or my write, you know, my free writing book, if it's a notebook. And and I felt that way this morning as I, as I looked at the chapter again and went, is this us? Did, is it, you know, this was two years ago. Is it a reflection of today? And I'm both proud, but also feeling like a layer of my skin is exposed, <laughs> you know, which I think speaks to the, you know, the nervousness Tuesday you were feeling at, at the opening and that I quickly felt because it's just right there. So it's a vulnerable act. It's a vulnerable act. And then I also just think writing about equity at this time in the world is also a vulnerable but important act. So 
I don't know if you just coined another term, Tuesday and Gabe, that will result in another chapter. But when you said the vulnerability of exchange, I immediately thought about the way we have to co-create anything, right? And that a principle of entering that relationship, whether as a food system, you know, advocate, I'm rebuilding food systems or working to create new futures for food systems. What is my vulnerability of exchange with my community partners, with farmers, with governments, with with consultants, right? That allow us to create an arc that you just highlighted, go do our work and then share that work wholeheartedly and openly with another person in the community and say, here, take it apart add to it, give it back to me. I trust you with the future that, I, that I'm imagining and that when you pass it back to me, you will give me feedback that might be difficult, might be beautiful, might be wonderful, but I'm going to stick in it with you because I see you as my partner. Like, so I don't know if vulnerability of exchange exists <laughs> as a scholarly term, but when you said it, I was like, ah, I need to be in that I need to co-create my relationships and my systems change work in my community with that intention, right? Find the right people and the right ways to hold space to have the vulnerability of exchange happen because then we'll make something new that is reflective of me and them. And so I just wanted to kind of elevate that in this moment this, you know, the podcast is supposed to be about the chapter. And I'm like, oh, I had a self-realization that will show up differently. <laughs> and, you know, and I hope, you know, listeners are hearing these things and, and, and getting their own ahas. But thank you. That was so beautifully said. Thank you, Summer. I think uh, I, I think I could probably speak for Gabe and I here and say if, the, if readers and listeners have a self-realization from reading or listening to this like that, I'll, I'll take that. That makes me really happy. That's what, uh, that's, that's, you know, that's what the, the, our work is for. Our work is not to make people carbon copies of us. It's actually to provide some direction pointing, right? Some ways to find themselves, some ways to find their group, some ways to step forward together. You know, you hear it all the time in, in this podcast and in our work, like we're not creating like the exact map or the 12 steps of systems awesome. It's, this chapter is that as well. It is giving direction, it is give it is pointing to a future, but it's up to all of us to figure out how to get there. Right, and 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 then by its nature, right. Let's get into some of the content, eh? All right, all right. All right. Enough of this. Oh, it was a lovely process, and we all love each other. Okay. <laughs> For goodness' sake, it's like some. Hey, we did talk about guts on a platter, so we did yeah. talk about guts. Yeah, that's true. Come on, that was suitable. Yeah, there was at least some like medieval kind of like guts on a platter reference. I appreciate that. All right, look, so you are, you are pointing to a future, you know, and, and embedded in that is some assessment of the present, right? The need for an alternative, the need for something else that we can move to, you know, and you talk about the limits of activism. So I, I kind of, you know, you talk about, you know, you're talking about writing about equity, Gabe, you know, and like, and, and so I'm interested in, like, so you've got some analysis of the way activism is playing out right now. 
You've got some suggestions for what kind of future we might move towards. You even talk about a change that leaves no one behind. I'd be delighted to leave some people behind personally. There's some people who can just stay on the island. Well, we'll say off. Today. I'll name them if you want. With Boris Johnson, he could stay there. I'm happy <laughs> Boris Johnson could stay on the island. I'll just sail off into the future. Donald Trump, he can stay there. Uh, Vladimir Putin, I'm fine if he stays there. I mean, I've got, I can get more personal, but I can't do that on the podcast. Probably not. Right? So I'm just I'm just saying, like, we, we've got you're you're pointing at you're, you've you've got an analysis of one thing and you're pointing to a different type of future and 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 I think that's some of the most provocative elements of that is to begin to have an analysis of activism and equity work that is current in terms of the dominant culture of doing that work and saying hey there needs to be something else and so uh, and I think that's maybe where you're also most vulnerable and uh, so I thought maybe let's talk about that <laughs> fun <laughs> Gabe, do you want to take it first? Do you want me to? I'm I'm happy to take it first. Yes. I mean, of course, there are people we want to leave behind. And I think, you know, that's often like attention in the work, right? And so when we wrote that in the chapter, we were really saying, this is what often our clients are inviting us into, is they want big change. And they want what they're saying is we, we want to leave no one behind. And the reality of what actually plays out, right, in terms of power dynamics, in terms of biases, beliefs, assumptions. I mean, that's a lot of the work we do at the outside, at the outset of any work, is to start to excavate the hidden pieces of what's shaping the work ahead, the path ahead. You know, and in terms of the activism piece, I mean, the way that I see it is not, it's not a criticism of activism, in the, for me, and, and Tuesday, I know you'll, you'll speak to this in your own way, but for me, it is, you know, I think that activism plays an essential role in making change and making transformative change that a lot of collaborative participatory work that we do can't get to, actually, because there's a space that we're working in that, you know, that oftentimes can, can stop that, can find it too dangerous, right? So there's something incredibly potent and transformative and powerful about activism. I think when I when I think about it in the context of the work we do as facilitators, as strategists, working in organizations, working in networks, is that my critique is of activist culture that can create gates for who feels that they belong in the work of equity, who have the right analysis, who have the right language, who belong to the right organizations, who are at the right protests, that there is a version of activist culture, and I'm not saying it's all, but that can be quite narrow in a sense of belonging. And what we want to do in the work of change that that we're in is a, a broader, wider invitation that both recognizes that some people have been on equity journeys their whole lives because of who they are and how they were born into the world. And others are just arriving at this journey, maybe even through the work we're in with them. And uh, I think our, our work as, you know, creating these, these spaces and working with is, is that we invite people in wherever they're at in that journey. And that's hard. And that's not everybody's work. And that also means that not everybody will feel safe enough to participate in that work with us. But there are other spaces for that kind of those efforts. And so um, so for me, when I that's sort of where I'm sort of seeing this distinction, if that makes sense, that we're really working in spaces where we want more people to feel invited into stepping into the work of equity together 
um, because that's what what the context is is requiring or demanding or asking in in the work. And in some ways, that like emphasis on a change that leaves no one behind, inverted commas, even right, is is a desire to defragment, isn't it? It's a desire to actually like connect together fragmented parts so we can achieve something more than what we could just do alone, right? In our particularly fragmented silos, communities, ways of thinking, departments, offices, uh, geographic, like you name it, right? And so I think there's something in that. There's something in that. Choose. I saw you nodding your head and leaning in, mate. I would, you know. Yeah, I think for me that change that leaves no one behind is an ideal, but it's an ideal I'm not willing to give up. Mm. I don't have to meet my ideals every day. I never make the perfect the enemy of the good, but I actually don't want to leave anyone behind. I don't know what that means. I don't think that whatever we're creating, Vladimir Putin's interested in. But that to me doesn't mean that we've left him behind. He is not opted to be part of, right? You know what I mean? Like there's there's just like an orientation to like, how do we make this tent big enough? And it's an invitation. It's not a... It's not conscription. It's not. Yeah, exactly. Yes. yes. That's exactly yeah. right. Which That's I think great. is part of like my own rub with some of the ways that change is made, right? Um, and it's it's like, and I don't need to restate what Gabe said. It's like, you have to think this way and be this way. And these people are out and these people don't get voice and these people just need to shut up and give up. Like, I just like, I don't, in my world, I say, yes, 76 right ways to make change. But that for me is not one of them. My way is a bigger tent. My way is I actually really believe we must be different in our lived experiences, our pasts, our lineages, our futures, as well as the way we approach change to actually do the kind of big change I want to see in the world. Like I actually think there is a need for difference in approach to actually move this whole ship forward. But that means that I think the activist approach is good for some things, mm-hmm. right? Like if I, yeah. when I talk about a difference in approach, I mean like all, you know, so there's something here around, you know, we talk about the complex joy and in the chapter, we talk about the belonging or the co-creation or the turning to each other that is not about the linked arms of identity. I'm in this group and you're not, right? It's, it's bigger than that. It's like, I'm in this work, right? <laughs> With you, which is, feels quite different to me as a way to turn to each other. And look, I think There are so many issues in the world today, like let's go at them all the ways, but I'm actually really clear what my way is. And my way is actually like, we got it. We got to have broad approach, broad difference in all of the ways, including approach to try to move this ship. That makes sense. I think that makes so much sense. I mean, I feel like I'm in, I'm I'm so blessed to be in like a private learning session where I'm just having like all of these epiphanies, right? Because it's really about futures with an S, right? There's 76 ways for something to be right. If you choose to believe that, that means there's 76 alternative, 76,000 possibly alternative futures that we are invited to build and co-create that can interlock and create our planetary future and the desire for it to be one future built on one imagination with one voice is actually in our time and space as we are imagining what is new and different about how we live like that's a curiosity like how do we do that how do we make how do we make space for more 
where there is alignment across what is equitable and fair and inclusive and gives everybody their best chance to live their best life in their most authentic way, right? That isn't predicated on oppressing another's way of living. And so when you talk about radical stances for complex joy, right? That's where I hear the radicalness in, in, in you and Gabe's response, right? And I wanted to ask, in this process, how important is it for it to be radical? Hmm. Whoa, Summer. That is amazing question. <laughs> I think for me and Gabe, I'm so interested in your answer. I, as a person who facilitates, supports, holds, leads, change, the radicalness is essential in my stance. But I don't, again, with that idea of a bigger tent, I don't, I, for me, it's not a requirement in everyone's stance. It's um, some folks we work with, I would not say they have much radicalness. They just want the systems to start stop hurting people that are in it. And I think that's noble and great. And I'm down for that too. And I feel in the spectrum of teams we work with, often there is a real, and maybe I, I hope I'm speaking to your question, Summer, there is a real spectrum of radicalness. And for me as a facilitator, I'm aware that there's some radical things I'm just holding. I'm just holding. And hopefully we'll be in the group or maybe it won't, but like this this stance for radical joy is one of the things that I'm holding, right? This idea that I'm going to go toward the ideal of leaving no one behind is a stance that I'm holding. But I don't require it, as Gabe has said a number of times, we don't require this stance for our groups. Part of this chapter, though, I think was to articulate part of what we hold, but also what some of the group's that work the best hold too. Gabe, what, how would you answer that? Well, thank you for answering first because now I get to build on it. And it, it just struck me as you were speaking that when I think back to how we decided what the audience of this chapter, you know, it wasn't, the audience is not necessarily our clients or the organizations we work with, although we will be so happy if they read it or find value in it. But I think in, because in the practicalities of our work, and, and I think all four of us share this and know this, once you get into it, the realities and limitations become apparent and we have to modify our work to fit the context, to fit the client, to fit the need. And this chapter actually just felt like, what if this could just be a big breath of actually we just get to say what we would if we didn't have to worry about shaving off the edges, softening this, moving quickly through that piece because there isn't enough time in the design to spend there. And so there was something about for us, I think it was like a radical claiming, taking up some space as facilitators and strategists in a way that we don't necessarily always in the work because there isn't the room or the time or the realities of it. And so I, you know, so I think it really just for us was that sense of what would we just write what will we just say? What do we feel? And this, this place of, I remember Tuesday, one question you asked me was like, do we just have to write what we know? Or can we also write what we aspire and long for? And I was like, I think that the sweet spot in our writing is both, you know, because we both hit those limitations and realities all of the time, every day in our work. Thank goodness we work together. You know, that's what makes the outside such an incredible place to work is because we can always turn to one another because the work we are in is big and it's hard and it always feels urgent to the people who are in it. So how do we sustain ourselves in that kind of work day to day? 
And so, you know, so there's just this sense of, I think it was just a sense of, yeah, who are we in this? What, what, what would we say? And so that's the part that felt radical. So again, more pearls that y'all dropped. I think, you know, the spectrum of radical action and helping people understand that very small things based on context can be deemed as radical and that radical can be huge shifts and changes. And right, the how we define radical in the work is really predicated on the context and the readiness of the system that you're working in. But there's also like an individual context for radical. And then I think that in my experience, and I'm going to pass to Tim after this, like I've shown up and seen like observed shift in our clients when we come in with our radical joy as first is like, it's quite off-putting for them to see a team that is so playful and um, joyful, but also, and so personable, but yet still oriented on the work. And usually over time with clients, I see our teams shift to kind of like just land a little bit more in their humanity and in their joy when we are together. And I, you know, I often wonder how much of that transfers or leaks into their organization, but I've been in the room and they're just at first where they're like, Oh, these people are kind of strange. Why are they so happy? And (laughs) we're talking about something really serious. The world could collapse tomorrow and they're laughing with each other. So, yeah, it's amazing. isn't it, it's like, uh, I've always had this aspiration for the outside, but just in general for like, how I turn up in, in the workspace to be like really professional, like looks nice, well organized, efficient in how it's delivered, right? Just like a, a really kind of like you, you present and deliver in an incredibly professional way, you know, but not to lose the humanity, for that not to be some kind of facade that you hide behind. That actually professional is just the mechanism through which we deliver the thing with you. But there's this whole other piece of the package, which is like laughter and joy and humanity and confusion and uh, not knowing what to do and like bad dad jokes and uh, uh, playlists for music. And I mean, all these other creativity and all of these other things that like make up a human experience, you know, without ever compromising, right, on a really top, top level of professionality, right, in terms of how we present what we deliver, how we contract, all of that. Like it, there's no need for it to be one or the other. I just, I, I love it that you said, you know, with both, why not? You know, you can be completely informal and incredibly professional at the same time, right? Look, there's something, I'm going to, I'm going to dig into this because like on the one hand, on the one hand, you're saying like, slow down, you know, on the other hand, you're saying, get to action, right? It's like both, you know, and of course, of course, you know, the risk of slowing down as we all get, you know, very interested in our own personal journey. The risk of getting to action is you don't think things through properly and you just end up perpetuating the very things you're trying to change, right? So there's some kind of like tension there between the, you know, it's almost like you're talking about two, you're talking about, I mean, you're, you're actually promoting two different things and during, in the chapter, slow down put work in the middle and get to action as quick as possible, you know? And there's a little bit of me like, what the fuck, you know? And and I, you're asking a lot, I think, to ask both those things of people. And so I just want, I, I would like to hear you talk a little bit more to that. Yeah, you know, I think that's a lot to ask of all of us, you know? Slow down, but get to work straight away. 
And I think the outside does model it to some extent. Uh, but I want to hear the two of you talk about it. You've had a chance to really mull it over and dig into it. Well, I think tensions are certainly at the heart of a lot of our writing, um, which we've discovered together. Do you want to take this one first, Suze? Sure. You know, I feel like, yeah, we are asking a lot of people. Fuck, the world's asking a lot of people. Yeah, right. It's the time. It's the time to ask a lot of people, isn't it? Exactly. That's what I'm feeling like. I like that doesn't bother me at all. That this is yeah. like a high threshold kind of like way of working, and it's not for everyone. Yeah. So I'm totally cool with that. And I think there is both can just be true, right? We actually, I find that, and we find it all of the time that we actually have an urgent issue that needs our attention. But unless we slow down enough to be considered not to spend six months in planning, right? But maybe to spend three months in preparing for action, right? Do you know what, you see what I mean? So like there's something about building our relationships and our ability to create together takes some time. Like again, if I, if I think about we need all of our brains and all of our approaches. When we share work together, at some point we have to make some choices about what, what actually are we going to do, right? And so that takes some time, but the focus is what are we going to do, right? There's still a focus on getting to action. There's still like that the orientation is toward action that is supported by good reflection, which again, doesn't mean six months of research on things we already know, which is often how people want to slow things down, but like real reflection, what's now, what does the research tell us? What do we know from those 40 years of reports in Nova Scotia? Like we would not be served by ignoring that, right? But we get to action and then we go into reflection again. And so it's like, we're also talking about cycles, right? Of like getting to work quickly and slowing down to reflect and getting to work quickly and slowing down to reflect. And they're not always just like linear, like you do one and then the other, but there is a need for both. And I think human beings take time to do big change. And that is true, but they can never, we, we cannot afford at this moment to kind of take our eye off the ball that we have to make change. And I think we talk about in the chapter, I know we talk about in the chapter that sometimes we think insight is change when insight should just spur our action so that we get more insights to spur our action. But we don't want to take action without insights. We don't want to take action without reflection. We don't want to, you know, like there are reasons that data are useful. <laughs> I don't know if I use the right, you know, the like data is one of those terms, data, datum. You data. got it. You got it. Okay, great. Data. <laughs> I, I think I just made that one up. Uh, but Gabe, what would you say? How would you, how would you describe that tension? Well, it's it, just 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 to maybe segue a bit there, Gabe, because you're talking about putting action. You're you're actually talking about leveraging all of it for action, right? I just want to say, like, you're talking about leveraging reflection. There's something about like you are actually squarely putting action in the center. So it's like what you talk about leveraging relationships, leveraging vulnerability. Like all of these things are for the purpose of getting shit done. It's not for the purpose of writing a report. It's not the. It's not for the purpose of planning action. It's for the purpose of getting to action. And I just think that's a, that's a, that's strong. Well, you know, and I think it's this aspirational piece, right? It's all toward this action, but it's action that we, that is making equitable, meaningful change that we can experience joy in, <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, and I think part of the, like why we talk about this so much. And I think people can go, oh, it's either or, or, 
Or oftentimes in rooms, we notice, and this as, as a person who works with evaluation and research on our team, is sometimes, you know, folks will show up in the breakout rooms with me and go, oh gosh, I'm just so glad like we're talking like with the data people, you know, I like to reflect on what we're doing. And then in other spaces, it's like, I'm the action person. And so like this, these are tensions in groups that we're working with. And there's something about kind of fine tuning the string on the instrument and knowing that it's going to go in and out of tune all the time, right? If you're a musician, you know, you're tuning your instrument all of the time. And so we just want to keep it at the forefront that this is some, this is an active process that we're in. And I, you know, I think one of the other pieces of it is that, you know, the larger context, and this connects to the larger context of the book of creative futures. Part of this is like, is thinking beyond the worldview of modernity in its, its limitations in terms of, you know, I'm just sort of, I'm thinking of some of the the binaries that exist, right? You know, mind, body, action, reflection, personal, social, um, you know, results, relationships, all of these things are seen in opposition. And one side is often highly valued in a modern worldview over the other. And we're actually saying, let's bring these into balance, into relationship, into conversation, because we're going to need it all to move forward. And we have to discern collectively where we're at and, and what we need more of at any time. And that, I think, doing a lot of assumptions work and beliefs work, investigating some of the habitual patterns that are playing out in change work is an incredibly important part. And so that's where the slowing down comes from. And, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm learning a lot from people like Bio Akumalafe or, um, you know, and his sort of like, the times are urgent, we must slow down. Kyle White, who's a, a Potawatomi scholar, an indigenous scholar who, who really talks about crisis epistemology and how we use urgency to justify a lot of really problematic things, you know, colonization for one, but what does that look like now in the context of the climate crisis? You know, and, and, and Adrian Marie Brown talks about we need to move at the speed of trust. And so I think the slowness piece has to, it has to be in there so we don't just kind of re keep recreating the problematic patterns that we've, we're just, you know, society's just really good at right now. Like there has to be interruption, um, but certainly not to navel gazing because then we lose everyone. So there's no finish line in any of this, the way you're talking about it. Just to be clear, right? Like, cause you kind of, like it's that idea Tuesday. Yeah. You know, have an insight. You're like, oh God, I'm done. Done for the year. Got my fucking insight. Have a badge. Go home. Smoke a joint. Watch Netflix. Thank you very much. That's awesome. Got my insight, you know. And but what you're talking about is a is a completely dynamic relationship between these two things that drive each other all the time. Action, reflection, right, right, like. Uh, and so I just I, I just think that's an incredibly kind of like healthy and whole way to look at it. But of course, it creates the conditions for a for a group of very diverse people to work together because all of those different parts, all of those different actors, all of those different behaviors suddenly become essential for us moving forward, right? Rather than there's an emphasis on one or the other, right? And so that that suddenly creates the conditions for multiplicity. That suddenly creates the conditions for multiple conflicting perspectives and peoples to work together because we need it all right? to go get this shit done, whether it's affordable housing, whether it's healthcare, whether it's accessible sport, you know, right? Like it, it, we suddenly need that all because we need that dynamic relationship to drive it, right? And the more monocultural it is, the less drive there is, the less radical it is, the more likely we are to produce more of the same. Mm -hmm. I love it. Summer, sorry. Yeah. 
You know, but it also feels to me, and this is just my interpretation of what we've been in, right? It also feels to me like it is the reframing, the, the tension, right? And the difference and the binary and integrating them and the cycles that Tuesday mentioned, right? On this long arc of change that won't ever end is where the complex joy lies, right? So it's like reframing that the tension is part of the pathway to the experience, the hardship, the problem, the thing that we have to crack together is what has deepened our relationship as outsiders, right? Being in it, finding equity across race, class, um, gender, right? All of these identities in our daily lives has made us people who have rarely been in the same space together, who have primarily worked virtually, quite close-knit and safe because we experience a version of complex joy that is driven by the tensions, mm-hmm. right? And it's not because we hide them, but it's because we find appropriate space to illuminate them and lean into them just, just enough to build that trust, that level of relationship so we can continue to turn to each other. Um, and so I'm, I'm like, wow, that's what I have to say. Like, wow. I just love how you listen, Summer. I feel like um, you listen in a way that's quite generative and what you uh, feed back is quite generative for me. So as you were talking, and I just want to say like, I know I believe this, but as you were talking, this is what I wrote down, which is joy isn't in the solving. It's in the striving, right? It's like, it's not actually in the landing at a solution, although it will be amazing (laughs) when we land in solutions, but it's in the striving with each other toward this future we want, right? So it's not, so there is something that we're saying about no finish line, that solution that we're saying is not where the joy lies. It may be because I don't believe in our lifetime, we will have full solutions (laughs) to things like racism and sexism, but there is a joy that is to be found and moving toward it together that I think, I actually think is our birthright. And I think we can look back to our ancestors and find the places that they were able to to be joyful and striving and moving toward a future together. I hope that our descendants can like, but it's not because they're actually going to get to a finish line. There is something innate in being a human being. When we turn toward each other to move toward a future together, I think there is some joy that is just inherent in that, no matter how hard it is. Well, look, friends, we're, we're nearing the end of our of our pod pod time hashtag pod time hashtag special pod <laughs> hashtag choose plus Gabe equals awesome. Hey, how about this? There you go, Jen. Jen does all the operations for the pods and puts relentless numbers of hashtags on. I'm just trying to help. So before we go into, because we're going to ask you for a little quote or you know, but I do. I, I wanted to ask. Um, I mean, obviously, this chapter isn't the end because you don't believe in finish lines. So what is the dynamic tension of Tuesday and Gabe working on now? Like, what is it? What's what's brewing, you know? And like, I know we've got a pod. We've got we've got a pod series coming up around evaluation and how data can actually mitigate the dangers of standing still too long or getting to action, which is some of what we began to kind of touch on today. Um, But like, particularly this writing partnership, what you what's cooking? Well, I mean, look, I think that uh, what's cooking is is a future, number one, right? The, the the chapter felt like just a beginning and it, I think it made both of us hungry for more and Gabe can speak to that. But I think that, I mean, like, look, 
we're going to write a book. That's what's going to happen. That, that is what's up. And I gave them. You heard it here first. That's a scoop for Find the Outside the podcast. Maybe that was premature. You heard it here first. We yeah. don't have a proposal accepted, but I'm so clear that this is like, we have to write on some of this and, and write in more places. So like, I think there's a book, right? But I think we're going to write in more places, right? I think that that is that. Gabe, how would you describe it? If The I'm, world needs you to. Hmm. Agreed. Thanks, friends. I mean, I'm doing it somewhat selfishly because I love to write and I love to write with Tuesday. And I think I find my way and our way into the work differently in writing. And I am just so appreciative of that. So yeah, so we're looking at, at, at other avenues of publication and we're, we're picking away at a, a, a proposal that we come together around and then things fill up, but it, it feels like a, a thread for this next while. So and it feels fresh, you know, at the, at the start of the year, we had a great conversation last week that just reinvigorated where we are. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to serving you more of my guts Tuesday. <laughs> nice. know, I can't help but think what image is Jen going to have for this podcast? I'm so interested. It's going to be like a steaming plate of guts, like on a plate <laughs> with someone holding it out. It's just like, here you go. Have some <sighs> of that, you know? Well, I mean, I want to express gratitude to the two of you for writing. Mm. Because it's not something I have the patience and time to do. And, and I've always found as someone who tends to express himself through music or movement, you know, to be able to go to places in the world who feel like they're writing with me or for me or on behalf of me, or I don't even know what the right places where I can go and see myself in the writing, mm. you know, are so incredibly important. Because there's something about just feeling less alone you know, less lost, mm. right? Feeling part of something that comes from engaging in writing, uh, like the way I experience yours. So I'm just really grateful that the two of you are taking the time and making the effort and building the relationship uh, to do this work because it helps me stay in my work and helps me uh, make sense of my life. And, and uh, so thank you. Don't stop. Don't stop. I hope this is a first step in a long long path. Well, and thank you both for the questions that you asked us today, because, you know, I spent time journaling about it yesterday and looking back over the chapter and, and it deepens my thinking. And I, and I think importantly, you know, Tuesday and I, we know this is a reflection of not only us, but the work that we're in together at the outside in our relationships and the work of all of the people in the room who give us the gift of their time and their attention and their effort and their joy and their challenge, you know, that this is really a shared creation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank, thank you, uh, Tim, for saying that. And thank you, Joy, Gabe, for like bringing that point up. We wrote this chapter kind of like on behalf of the outside, not as like, I, we knew we wouldn't represent every voice of outsiders in it, but it was to share the work of the outside in a way like we're, we're articulating it in some ways, like Tim, you articulate the work of the outside in your visuals. And you know what I mean? Like there's just, we have different ways of articulating this work, but it is a, it is, you know, often when we're giving presentations, right. We have that slide of outsiders. And I always pause and say like, this is like, I'm in the room, but these, this is who's here too, right. This is who's contributing. This is who's doing this work. This is who, um, in, impacts my thinking and how I can show up today. So it's certainly, thank you for those words. I love that we're 
we're writing in a way that lands for you. Cause I also agree. I have trouble finding writing that lands for me. So I'm thrilled to hear that. And I also just like, thank you. And thank you to the other outsiders for like what this work has been to give us something to articulate in this way. I know we're closing that. And I just want to say for me, the most beautiful part of having the preview of the privilege to preview this chapter and, and interview you was because not only did I see the outside in it. I understood at a deep level that this wasn't just what you were writing about, but this is exactly what we were living or attempting to live in the work. So I felt the reality and I felt the aspiration to pull it out into bigger and more. And it was an easy read. It was accessible, right? That made me so happy that I felt like anyone I knew I could send it to them and it would be at a space where they could gain something. Thank you, Summer. Thank you, Summer. Look, we, we, we've, we've got a tradition on the pod and it's like we ask the guests. Yeah, yeah, you're a guest Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> guest on Summer and my pod, mate. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so... Um, <laughs> Ridiculous, but great. Yeah, I'm sorry. So we, ask, we usually ask people, have you got a quote in your back pocket or, a, a, you know, a, a saying, or is there something you're carrying around in your life at your moment that just is with you, you know? So I just, just an opportunity to, to bring that. Mm. And uh, it doesn't have to be something you rustle around on your desk papers for, or is there something that's kicking around or, uh, in your life at the moment that helps you make sense and give meaning? Yeah, well, I was I I had forgotten, even though this is my podcast and we ask this question to every guest. But the quote was given to me yesterday by my friend Christine Agiton, and she this is a quote by a man named Richard Rohr, which I don't know much about and haven't done any reading of. And he says, "The authentic self can never be offended," and it really resonated for me. Like, what are the ways? that offense is kind of protecting something that isn't even me or isn't even really me? Is there a way that I can just like walk in the world without offense, without be? And so that goes to our earlier conversation around the radicalness of the facilitator or of the leader or the person in our role. I think that makes all the difference, whether it is said into the room or not. I think what we hold when we go into the room is really important. So if I can keep in mind the authentic self can never be offended. It feels like that is radical for the work we're doing. Gabe, anything that's kicking around for you, mate? Well, maybe I'll end on if folks who are on this, listening to this podcast, have any personal relationship with facilitation or process, and you're on Twitter, which I know is a dumpster fire at the moment, there is an account called Shit Facilitators Say, And it just brings me so much joy and levity because it's snarky and funny and fully on point. And I don't think I can, I'm trying to think if I can pull one up here, but they are just the right thing for me, I think, to take the edge of seriousness off of this work because I can totally go there. And, you know, and I think also just as an intellectual, you know, and then being in, in big hard work. And so anyway, folks, if you would love a little laugh, I definitely suggest uh, shit facilitators say on Twitter. Even better than a quote is giving people a place to go find quotes, right? That's a top notch, mate. Right. Here's one. Here's one. 
I love when an RFP gives me just enough information about the client system to let me know I don't want to enter it. (laughs) There we are. See? And on and on and on. I love it, my friends. Thank you so much for your time and energy, uh, not just today, but just in general and for the enormous gift that you being alive is bringing to this little planet at this particular time. Like, enormous gratitude. Thank you so much. All right. Take care, friends.